This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Becky Morgan, Randy Pond, Lisa Sonsini, and Silver Lake. Special thanks to our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Friends of Sing Kung, Friends of Webb McKinney, Eris Communications, Deloitte, and HP Inc., and to our Truth, Love, and Reconciliation Dialogue Series sponsor, Destination Home. Welcome to the dialogue. You see, for so long, I thought my breathlessness was a sign of my weakness. But your breathlessness, my love, is is not a sign of your weakness. I wish to tell you what a wise mentor from Stanford (laughs) once told me when I was a student. Your breathlessness is a sign of your bravery. It means that you are awake to what is happening in the world right now. The world is in transition. I wanna begin my remarks by talking about what I mean by that, this era of transition, and the role that I believe that each of us can play in this era of transition, and then how we play it, how we stay in the labor. And that is where I'll talk about why I believe revolutionary love is the call of our times. This era of transition, I believe will last 25 years. You see, within 25 years, the number of people of color in the United States will exceed the number of white people on this soil for the first time since colonization. And we are at a crossroads. The forces that we have seen rise to dominance in the last few years, white supremacy, patriarchy, tyranny, these assaults on our democracy, these forces are not just going away with a new administration, although we wish they would. No, they're going to be here as long as this nation is transitioning. This crossroads that we're at means that it's a question what the future holds. Will we continue to teeter on the brink of a kind of civil war. More images like we saw on January 6th, a kind of power struggle between us and those who would wish to return America to a past where only a certain class of white people hold dominion. Or will we begin to birth a nation that has never been? In the history of the world, a nation made up of other nations, a nation that is truly multi-racial, multi-faith, multicultural, where we strive to protect the dignity and the wellness of every single one of us. With the climate crisis, the stakes become existential, don't they? If we don't start solving the climate crisis within the next 25 years, starting now, there may not be a world at all. We who are alive today get to decide whether humanity itself survives or not. Will we? Will we marshal the vision and the skill and the solidarity to solve these problems together? Or will we begin to perish? The future is dark. But I have come to ask you this question that I've asked myself every day. Is this darkness in our nation, in our world? Is it the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? What if our America is a nation still waiting to be born? What if a world that is sustainable, that thrives, is waiting to be born? That brings me to you. For I see you as the midwives to a nation, a human race in transition. We need sound government. We need the policies, we need the policy makers, we need just policies, yes. But we know that government alone is not sufficient to take us across that threshold. We need a shift in culture and consciousness. We need a revolution of the heart. And that is block by block work, heart to heart work. That is 
each of us seeding beloved community where we are. It is time for us to reject all hierarchies of human value. And that's, that's what this is, isn't it? All societies all around the world have been organized by a hierarchy of human value. And here on US soil, the oldest such hierarchy is that of white supremacy. Our entire institutions built to preserve the interests of one group over another have depended on our failure to see no stranger, asked us to be complicit in the lie. But what if those of us who have heard the call to love, a revolutionary kind of love, love without limit, what if, it, what if those of us, those of you, could look at where you are, your own sphere of influence, you are leaders in arts and education, business and government, wherever you are, imagine what it would look like to transition the institutions that you are part of to become containers for beloved community. If we could see this sort of shift in culture and consciousness in pockets all around the nation, would that create the critical mass to transition the nation as a whole? That is my vision. That is the promise that I have made to devote my life to this task to play my role in the labor. And my particular role is to reclaim the ethic of love and offer people like you holding communities together tools to practice it. I really appreciated what Suzanne said about love. <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm a trained lawyer. And you know what that means. Anytime anyone said the word love to me on a stage, love is the answer, I would roll my eyes. <laughs> I would leave the room like you, you don't know what we're up against. What about institutions that perpetuate oppression? What does love have to do in the face of all of that? I, um, I came to understand that The problem is not with love, but with the way that we talk about it in this country. You see, I've spent the last 20 years fighting on the front lines for civil rights in the United States with black and brown communities. I have faced police brutality and hate violence and sexual assault. I've worked in prisons, Guantanamo Bay. Sometimes I have arrived in places after a mass shooting where the blood was still fresh on the ground, I have seen how communities have shown up to the labor again and again and again and how they have survived. Grace Lee Boggs, the only way to survive is by taking care of one another. But I could not see what it took me leaving the country to see. The love ethic at work. Four years ago, when the last president took power, hate crimes were skyrocketing once again against my community and I had just become a new mother and you know, I became an activist in college after Bilbir Singh Sodhi. Bilbir uncle was the first person to be killed in a hate crime after 9-11. His murder turned me into an activist. And here I was, a new mother, thinking, oh my God, my son is now growing up in a nation more dangerous for him than it was for me. <laughs> What is this? How, how am I going to last if the labor is this long? If the labor for justice is this hard, how will I last? And I had a gift that few women who are mothers and activists are ever given. I was given a room of my own, <laughs> a book advance that gave me just enough time to leave the country. I went to the rainforest for a year and I thought and I read and I wrote and I, you know, the rainforest felt like the womb. <laughs> It was warm and wet and safe and generative. It was like the womb of the earth. And there, my son and I, we would hike through the rainforest in the morning and then he would play with his grandparents while I sat with all my books and I just poured through everything that I had ever written since the age of seven. I poured through all my textbooks from divinity school to law school, all the cases of social movements from the past, wisdom traditions, looking for the answer. That's where the word love started to rise to the surface. And at first I was reluctant, what love? And then I began to see patterns and practices. The problem is not with love, but with the way that we talk about it. We tend to talk about love as a rush of emotion. We fall in love, it's something that happens to us. Oh, but we know if you think about your closest relationships in life, that love is more than a rush of feeling. 
Love is sweet labor. Fierce, bloody, imperfect, life-giving, a choice we make again and again and again. And if love is labor, then love contains all of the emotions. Joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Rage is the force that protects that which we love. And if love is labor, then love can be modeled, love can be taught, love can be practiced. And when I went back to social reformers, spiritual teachers throughout history, they always called us to a love without limit, loving beyond our immediate circles. What happens when we labor for people outside of beyond what evolution requires? Then it's inherently disruptive, right? Revolutionary love. I define revolutionary love as the choice to enter into labor for others, for our opponents, and for ourselves. As I began to construct this framework for revolutionary love, I called together a team of researchers in the United States from various fields, from ethics, education, neuroscience, psychology, and I asked them to do the research with me so that we could create this compass of sorts, this, this framework, these 10 core practices for how to make love a conscious practice where we are. And I'm going to share with you the three broad orientations of what I discovered, and then we can talk more about them with Ladoris, and I cannot wait for that. So I'm going to ask our tech folks to share with you a compass. Now, if you're a visual learner, please, this is for you. Uh, if not, just let, you can close your eyes and just let my storytelling flow over you. I'm going to explain this compass as a construct. It's a tool. Take it if it is useful to you. So revolutionary love the choice to love others, our opponents, and ourselves. When you have an other in front of you, that core orientation is called see no stranger. See no stranger. It begins with that core inner ring, that core practice called wonder. <laughs> this practice is about looking upon the face of anyone around you and saying, you are a part of me I do not yet know. You are a part of me I do not yet know. I will open myself to your story, to your grief. That kind of wonder is inherently revolutionary because what if, what if we saw Breonna Taylor as sister, George Floyd as brother, migrant child at the border as our own daughter, <laughs> Asian woman slaughtered in Atlanta as our own auntie, as our own sister. What would we do? What would we risk? How would we show up differently? Wondering like that is a way to expand the circle of who counts as one of us to include all of us. I don't begin with empathy. Empathy is to feel as another or compassion. Compassion is to feel for another. I find that wonder when you open yourself up to another imagine their experience as vast and infinite as you are to yourself, then empathy and compassion follow. They're critical tools in love, but that primary practice, the wellspring of love is wonder. My children taught me this. They change so fast every day. They're six and two <laughs> that I have to wonder about them every day to figure out how to care for them, right? And sometimes when my daughter is screaming, empathy is not that helpful. <laughs> I need to, I can feel as she feels, but if I wonder about what she needs, that gives me information for what to do next. So wonder, the next practice is called grieve. Once we open ourselves to another, how do we carry their grief? We tend to think in our culture that grieving means fixing it. There's no fixing it. There's only bearing it. And any time in history when people have had no obvious reason to love one another come together to grieve, they give birth to new relationships, even revolutions. That brings me to the next practice called fight. Each of us has a role to gather that information gathered from, from grieving in order to fight for and with one another. So wondering and grieving and fighting is how to build deep solidarity. Now, what happens when the other in front of you is your opponent? You may say, okay, say to everyone, brother, sister, what about the demagogue in office? What about the gunman? What about my own former abuser? How is it that you expect me to practice love for them? <laughs> this orientation, when the other in front of you becomes an opponent, this I call tend the wound, tend the wound. And you know what it, how it begins? That inner practice right there is rage. We cannot tend the other's wound until we tend our own. 
So honoring our rage, finding safe containers to process our rage, to express our rage, to be in relationship with our rage and ask what information does this rage carry? We can talk about this more with Lodoris because this, this, <laughs> this ends up being a vital practice for folks. That is how we tend our own wounds. And only when it is safe enough and brave enough might we do the work of listening to our opponents. To listen to our opponents, there's a set of tools for that. And the, the goal, the takeaway is that listening is not about persuasion, it's about understanding, understanding them. For once we understand them, then we can gather the information we might need to reimagine, not resist, but reimagine the institution or the culture or the context that allows them to continue their behavior. Now, this is really important before I get to the next part. Revolutionary love must be practiced in community. We all have a different role at any given time. So if you are someone who has a knee on your neck right now, it is not necessarily your role to look up at your opponent and try to wonder about them or listen to them or try to love them. No, my love, your, your, your role is to stay alive, to take the next breath. That is your revolutionary act. But if you are someone who is safe enough or brave enough to listen to those kinds of opponents, we need you now. We need you in that labor. Because here's the truth, and this book is filled with stories. Every time I've sat down with white supremacists or prison guards or soldiers or my own former abusers, as much as I want to hate them, when I listen beneath the slogans and sound bites, I hear their story, I see their wound. There are no such thing as monsters in this world. Only human beings who are wounded who do what they do out of their own insecurity or blindness that doesn't make them any less dangerous. But to see them not as monsters, but as frail human beings, they no longer have power over us. We can change the context, the cultures, the institutions that allow them to do what they do. We can reimagine a future that frees even them. This is long labor, <laughs> difficult labor. So I turn the compass once more to ourselves. Now, social reformers throughout history, from Gandhi to King to Mandela, they taught us a lot about how to love others and how to love our opponents, not at length about how to love ourselves. This is the feminist intervention. This black women like Audrey Hulord, Bell Hooks, who teach us that caring for ourselves is not self-indulgence, but a form of political warfare. You see, breathing and pushing is the wisdom of the, of the midwife. She doesn't say breathe once and push the rest of the way. No, she says, my love, breathe, and then push and then breathe again. So that core practice is about breathing. How are you breathing today? How are you caring for your body? And who are you breathing with? <laughs> and only if we're ready do we go to the practice of pushing. When are we ready to enter uncomfortable thoughts or emotions in order to do the work of healing? forgiveness, reconciliation, apology, what are we ready for to evolve ourselves as a way of loving ourselves? And there will be moments when you say, I can't, I can't, it's too hard. And the midwife knows those I can't moments are always signs that the body's in transition. Transition is the final and most dangerous and most painful stage of labor, but it's, it is precisely what precedes the birth of new life and so, this practice is about calling forth sources of wisdom inside of you, bravery, to be able to breathe again and to push again, to transition yourself as you're transitioning the world around you. Loving others, loving our opponents, loving ourselves. What kind of love are you hungering for in this time in your life? What do you need? What does your community need? <laughs> and I find, you know, I'm back from the rainforest. I'm back and I am promising you that my goal is to live as long as Grace Lee Boggs, 100 years old. I will not be a woman of color who takes her life or who allows her life to be taken because I finally figured out how to move through the world oriented to love. And when I'm practicing love, loving others, loving opponents, loving myself all throughout, I notice that the labor itself becomes porous enough to let joy in, to let joy in, joy is what gives us energy for that long labor. I have come to believe that laboring for a more just and beautiful world with joy is the meaning of life. I am so excited to roll up my sleeves and talk about this with you all tonight. I would just take a screenshot of that compass because it'll disappear in a moment and you can use it and refer to it for the rest of the evening. 
I, I, I really can't wait to, to hear from all of you. Oh, Doris, hi. Hey, thank you so much, Valerie. Um, I, I reiterate, I, I did read your book and I, I, I encourage people to read it because the, the way you are a storyteller and the way that you tell your story is, is just, um, it, it touches the heart. So thank you. So we only have about 30 minutes to talk and I have some questions I wanna to put to you. So let's start our conversation. Um, so I, I wanna start off, if you would just give us a, I don't know, two to three minute tutorial, a quick one about sick history and culture. And I just want you to know, I go, I go on Google and I go and I write in how to pronounce S-I-K-H. And if you go on, they have actually a, a, a vocal thing and every pronunciation pronunciation has been seek. So I, so talk to us. Uh, I've been saying sick, but you let us know how to correctly pronounce it because I'm being told one thing and hearing others. And then maybe just a, a capsule about this faith of yours, its history and a little of its culture. So it is pronounced sick with an aspirated H, but if you say seek, most likely we will not correct you because we are just relieved that you know who we are. <laughs> there are 23 million six worldwide, there are, it, it is the fifth largest organized world religion, uh, and yet probably among the most invisible. In a nutshell, uh, our faith began 550 years ago in South Asia, when a man named Nanak was so distraught by the hierarchies of human value around him, the caste system, um, Hindus and Muslims and religious violence, he disappeared by a river for three days, sitting in perfect meditation. And the sun rose and the sun fell and the sun rose and the sun fell and people thought he was a dead man, a drowned man, but he was too, he was looking for the answer. He was looking for the solution. <laughs> and he was struck with a vision of oneness, ik omkar, ik omkar, we are one, we belong to one another. We can look upon the face of anyone and say, you are a part of me, I do not yet know. Guru Nanak was so struck with wonder that he began singing a song of oneness. And so all of our scriptures are not stories or, or, or rules or commandments. They, they are divine poetry, ecstatic poetry, singing the praise of, of love all around us, inside of us. Nako beri nehi bagana. I see no enemy, I see no stranger, said Guru Nanak. These are Guru Nanak's words. <laughs> I see no enemy, I see no stranger. He taught that all of us can see the world in this way when we quiet the ego inside of us through music or meditation or poetry or recitation and turn and look to the world through the eyes of wonder. Ah, oh, that's how we fall in love, he says. But my grandfather who'd tell me these stories when I was a little girl, he said, but love is dangerous business. Love is dangerous business for if I see you and if I love you as my sister, as my brother, then I must fight for you when you are in harm's way. So Guru Nanak's followers became known as Sikhs, which means students of truth, disciple, but we became known as Sant Sapahi, warrior sages or sage warriors. The warrior fights, the sage loves, I took it as a path of revolutionary love. So talk to us about Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Uh, something happened there. And if I went up to most people here in this country, even maybe even Wisconsin and said, what happened at Oak Creek, Wisconsin? I'd get a blank stare. Um, so, and part of what happened there had such an impact on you. So if you could, again, because our time is tight, maybe briefly talk to us about that and its impact on you. Atlanta happens, right? And I'm thinking the last time Asian Americans were slaughtered on this scale was when it was my people, Sikh Americans in a Gurdwara, a house of worship on a Sunday morning in Oak Creek in 2012. A white supremacist walked in, opened fire. It was the largest, bloodiest act on sick Americans in our hundred some year history in the United States. And yet it was precisely that time when the nation turned its spotlight on us. It was the first time we even got to be able to tell the country who we were, but we were so busy trying to give the country Sikhism 101 that we didn't get to the point of forcing a conversation about white supremacy in this country. No president came to visit us, no vice president even when we begged them, even when I wrote a public letter begging President Obama, no one came for us. 
when I see the president and vice president in Atlanta this last week, I think this is progress. It's incremental, but at least we're being pulled a little bit closer to recognition. You see, six were attacked in Oak Creek because um, we have always been at the forefront of anti-Muslim violence in this country. Six were five articles of faith, um, including Arkara, a steel bracelet, and Gesh, long uncut hair, which men and some women wrap in a turban. So the idea was that you would see us in a crowd and we could not hide, right? If we're supposed to be Sun Sapai, sage warriors, and you would have to look at us and say, oh, a stick will help me. <laughs> they will feed me, they will shelter me, they will defend me. So how, how ironic that since 9-11 for the last 20 years, these very markers of our faith have, um, that are meant to signal our commitment to love has, have marked us as terrorists. Oh, Ladoris, that, that moment was transformational for me because it was there that I learned the true meaning of Chardikala in my faith. In the wake of that atrocity, our community, our community rolled up our sleeves and we went into the Gurdwara ourselves and we rebuilt the Gurdwara playing the scriptures, playing the songs, and, and we kept saying Chardikala, Chardikala, we have to stay in Chardikala. And I had always translated Chardikala's everlasting optimism, you know, hope in the future, but it, it's not about that at all. It's how, it's how I talk about joy. Jardikala, to stay in Jardikala is ever rising spirits, even in the darkness, ever rising joy, even amidst the pain of labor. So in Oak Creek, I learned that it's okay if hope waxes and wanes like a moon. Sometimes it's full and luminous. Sometimes you can't see it at all. Hope will wax and wane, wax and wane. What matters is the work that your hands do. And what keeps me in the labor is being able to let in Chardika, let in a kind of ever-rising joy, that just being here alive now, doing the work with you, Ladoris, with all of you, that that itself is an end in itself. When we orient to our lives with love, then each moment can be an end in itself. And I think that's how we get to 100 years old. <laughs> in your book, you describe in detail um, what happened in Oak Creek. I mean, in detail that it's important, I think, for people to read it. And you did reach out to White House to have someone come. And I think eventually, if I remember right, Michelle Obama, did she show up at some point? Is she that right? Did. Yeah, I, a few yeah. weeks later, very privately, yeah. I got to thank her in person for it and how much it meant right. to the community. Right. Okay, so let me, let me move on. And thank you so much for that. Um, a few months ago, and actually this was, I think, just before the election, I was standing in line at the Apple store at the Stanford Shopping Center. And I was wearing you know, my face mask and I had the words Black Lives Matter printed on it. So at some point I'm waiting in line, there are a bunch of people out there and social distancing. A maskless white man walked up to me. He pointed his finger at me and he just yelled at the top of his lungs, get the fuck over it, get the fuck over it. And he just stood in front of me, just shaking with anger. And then he backed up and then he walked away. So I had no idea if he had a weapon on him. So I didn't move. I just stood there. But none of the several people who were standing nearby said or did anything. No one told him to move on. No one asked me afterwards if I was okay. They said nothing. And most of them just looked away. Now, on page 156 in your book, you write, it is extremely difficult to draw close to someone you find absolutely abhorrent. And you continue, how do we listen to someone when their beliefs are disgusting? So I ask you, how would you have reacted in that situation if you were one of those bystanders or and if you had been me? Oh, my love, I would have come right up to you as if you were my sister, or my long lost friend. Oh, it's so good to see you again. Come over here. Let me show you something. And I would, got, I would have gotten you out of harm's way. It was never your role to say anything or do anything in that moment. You couldn't. You had to survive, right? You had to just freeze. And how many times have there been racial slurs slung at my family, my father, my son, and two, people just standing there not doing anything. If those folks, like the man who assaulted you, are so primed to be able to hurl their assaults, then the rest of us have to be primed to be able to see no stranger. 
there's all this data out there about how when we see another person as part of us, we are more likely to intervene when they are in harm's way. There were not enough people around you who looked at you and saw you as sister, daughter, grandmother, friend, to be able to say, oh, let, let's go over here, Ladoris. Let's go over here. So how do we change that? How do we get the people who are the bystanders to become the upstanders? It begins long, long before that moment, doesn't it? It begins with how we're orienting to each other in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes. You know, it, it begins with training the eye. You know, it's see no stranger. We have to retrain what has been done to us. The way to train the eye to see no stranger is by practicing it, by laying down new neural pathways. And so literally the practice I'm inviting people into is walking down the street and saying, even the people with masks, sister, brother, sibling, aunt, uncle, grandfather, you're training your eye to see differently. So the next time someone like you is in harm's way, there's no question I'm jumping in because you <laughs> are mine. Yeah. That's how, so, that's the shift in culture that I'm talking about that we have to be right. doing where we are. Right. And I guess the issue is, you know, how, how we make that shift. And the more people to whom you speak, the more people who read your book, we get a sense about, you know, a, a new way, I think, of thinking about people. So as you say, they are not strangers to us. Let me, let me ask you something else. In 2019, I had the opportunity to meet the Grand Wizard of the KKK. And this was in, in the South, in, in Tennessee. And I'm at this gathering, and he spoke about some of the violent and hateful acts that he committed against African Americans. And I'm talking bad stuff. I'm really bad stuff. And he told us, those of us at this gathering that he had renounced the KKK and he was speaking out against bigotry and prejudice now. So I had no way of gauging this man's sincerity. What I did know was that he was garnering a lot of publicity because of his renunciation of the Klan. So even if he were sincere, I found it impossible to, and I'm quoting from your book, look upon the face of this stranger and say, you are a part of me, I do not yet know. Yeah. Seeing this stranger did not generate any wonder in me. Yeah. So what, what is your reaction? That is exactly where you should be. Revolutionary love is not the sacrifice of an individual, it is the practice of a community. And at any given time, we have a role to play. And so th the fact that so many Black people, so many women, so many women of color continue to have the metaphoric knee on neck, and then for us to then be asked to look at our opponents, even those who say, I've changed, look at me, when we are still dealing with the trauma that they have inflicted, I mean, that, that is where I say our revolutionary act is to tend our own wounds, to take care of one another. Let other people be the ones to gauge his sincerity. Let other people be the ones to sit with him. Other white people who are also formally renouncing their allegiances have to find somewhere to go, so let them go to him. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to engage in relationship or wonder. Your job is to give other people permission to do that labor. I'll give you I'll give you one more story because this is a recent one. It wasn't in the book, you know, on 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 January 6th, it was a harrowing day for our country and specifically for my family. My brother-in-law was was trapped in the Capitol building during the insurrection and I was so worried that they would find him, that they would see him not as just a reporter but a a brown man. I didn't know if he would make it out alive and I we were watching the images and on the phone with his wife, his fam sobbing, his mother and only when he left did I notice what was happening in my body. I'm like, oh, this is terror. <laughs> He's safe now so I could feel my body in terror. And this terror is familiar. How many times have I seen people I love in harm's way and have been helpless to save them? Later that night, I got a call from a dear friend of mine who helped me build the Revolutionary Love Project. And she said, I'm so sorry, my, my parents were at the Capitol too. And I said, oh, are they okay? She's like, no, you don't understand. They were on the outside of the building praying. 
So here I am, my brother-in-law's on the inside and the parents of this woman I love were on the outside. And in that moment, Lodoris, I thought of Dr. King's words that we are bound together in a single garment of human destiny. As much as I wanted to hate those people, despise those people, rage against those people, I could no longer see them as monsters when I saw them through the eyes of their daughter, who saw them not as fully evil, but as deeply wounded, deeply misinformed, whose racial biases have been whipped up. That doesn't make them any less dangerous. But it does make it possible to say, these are wounds that we can tend to. It's not my role, but it might be hers. Right. If each of us can figure out what our roles are, <laughs> then perhaps the millions of people who are all the way or lost or in between, can, we can take them along too and hold up a vision for a country that says, no, there's a place for you in it. Okay, so anti-Asian violence has increased in the aftermath of Trump, his repeated reference to the coronavirus, it's a Chinese virus, Kung Fu, flu, all of that. So two weeks ago, eight people, six of them Asian Americans, uh, women who were murdered in Georgia by a young white male gunman who one police officer described as just having a bad day. Uh, America has seen African-Americans, Latinx, Asians, Muslims, LGBTQ people and women abused, injured and murdered by law enforcement and by private citizens armed with guns and armed with hate. You have two children. I have two daughters. I have five grandchildren, all of whom are children of color. Are you worried about their survival in this country? And if so, what can we do to keep them and all children and grandchildren of color safe? <laughs> isn't this, isn't this fear so old? How many mothers on the soil, how many black mothers, brown mothers, indigenous mothers carry the fear that you and I carry now for our children and our grandchildren. It's ancient, isn't it? I think that if there is such a thing as intergenerational trauma, and we know there is, and there must be such a thing as intergenerational resilience, intergenerational wisdom. So, so I say the first thing, right? Bracely Boggs, we the only way to survive is by taking care of one another. I think the first thing is to be able to draw on those practices, to gather our children together, to be able to still protect joy each and every day in our home. On the darkest days, we still dance together. We wonder about each other. We love on each other really well, really hard, and we teach them how to be careful out in the world. And, and I don't know, Ladoris, I don't know if it's gonna be safe enough when they grow up. I don't know. Hope, right, waxes and wanes, all I know is that I wanna stay in the labor and that progress, if we think about the story of America as one long labor, then progress is not linear. Progress is cyclical, a series of expansions and contractions, expansions and, and contractions. So when I thought of last summer, you know, 2020s, after George Floyd's death, it felt like 1968, it felt like 1992, it felt like nothing had changed and yet there was a, wall of white people in front of black people kneeling in the street in front of an army of police officers. We had never seen those images before. Multiracial uprisings for black lives around the world. This time too, with Asian American violence, I thought this was just like 9-11, just like Bobir Uncle's death, just like Vincent Chin. Here again, we're made the enemy, we're made suspect, we're made perpetually foreign, we're being killed, we're being raped, we're being targeted. And, and then I'm saving newspaper articles Things I've never seen before, you know, people volunteering in Chinatown to walk the elderly home. Hashtag stop anti-Asian violence, the president visiting, right? If we think about progress as, as, as a cyclical, then every turn through the cycle touches upon previous traumas. We've been here before. And yet every turn through the cycle gets us a little bit closer to what is wanting to be formed if we show up. So there is a little bit more space now, Ladoris, a little bit more than before, a little bit more solidarity, a little but, bit but more. Let me ask, but, bit but, more. But, but, but let me ask you this, Valerie, black parents, black grandparents, we have the talk with our children, yeah. particularly with our uh, young males of color, of you know, African-American males. We have the talk and that talk can happen when they're 11 or 12. 
I mean, in, in, you know, do you have the talk? Are you going to have the talk with your son? I heard my first racial slur when I was sick, when I was six. My son heard his first racial slur when he was four. So of course I've had the talk. <laughs> At six years old, a little brown boy with long hair. Of course I've had the talk. And I think, I think, you know, when I talk about progress being cyclical and a little bit more solidarity than before, I think what needs to happen and what is happening is that white people are realizing that racism is not our problem, that it's their problem. And that reckoning white supremacy is something that white people and white families need to do. They need to have the talk with their six-year-olds about white supremacy and caste and racism in America and how they might be primed to be accomplices. And I take this language from indigenous leaders who call us not just to be allies. And I think white people have had the notion of allyship in their minds for a long time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stand by if you need me. Call, call, Ladoris, you should have called me. I would have done something for you. If, as if I, they had to be given permission. You know, we need to move the, the frame from allyship to become accomplices. Yeah. Accomplices conspire mm -hmm. with you to reorder the world. Right. And, and I'll say this one thing, what if this generation is the generation of white people who change the meaning of whiteness in America? Whiteness has been complicit. Whiteness has been associated with domination, complicity, and blindness. What if this is the generation that begins to change that meaning into being an accomplice with us, centering us in this long struggle? Yeah, and what people don't talk about is, is the, having this thing, what you've just described as the other talk. So there is the talk that parents of color, grandparents of color give to their kids and grandkids, but there also needs to be the talk um, by white parents and white grandparents to their children. And it's a very different talk, but it, it may end up getting us at the very place we all need to be. Let, let me shift and ask you something else now. East Palo Alto is situated across the freeway from Palo Alto and Stanford. And unlike Palo Alto and Stanford, East Palo Alto has historically been a low-income community that for decades was predominantly African-American. But over recent years, like the last decade now, we've seen a dramatic increase in the, the Latinx population. So several years ago, I heard one of the community's highly respected Black leaders in East Palo Alto comment about the desire of the Latinx community to hold seats on the city council. And she told me something like this, it's been black folks who have fought for this city. And now these folks, these other people come in, they come along and they wanna run things over my dead body. This is our city, it's not theirs. We paved the way, we should be the leaders. They can wait their turn. So I listened to her and I sighed and I thought, uh, you know, this is what I call the competition of the oppressed. And, and it saddens me. Um, have you experienced this? And if so, what's your take on it? And how do we move from competition with respect to oppression to collaboration? Isn't that the great trick of white supremacy? To make us all believe that it's a zero sum game. <laughs> that, if, that if my community that has been oppressed gets something that this other community doesn't, that that, you know, it, it, I think Heather McGee is doing great work around her new book, The Sum of Us, dis spelling this entire myth and saying people of color being pitted against each other is just another way that white supremacy perpetuates itself. I will say this, and Isabel Wilkerson's work on caste has really helped me with this, imagining, you know, really a kind of caste system at work in the United States, a ranking of human value. And if that's the case, white on top, black on bottom, the rest of us sort of middle caste, some of us aspiring to whiteness, others trying to find solidarity, then, then that we have some guidelines that might be helpful for us about how to form solidarity, build beloved community here in the United States. And these, these are my guidelines. If I'm in a place that centers black lives, because with anti-blackness in this country, we know that black liberation is central to collective liberation. So even those Latinx people in that community, can you still be in positions of power that still center the black lives that are represented in the society? Because, because that is vital for any picture of solidarity. So centering black lives, 
if we begin with indigenous wisdom and indigenous resilience for the memories of indigenous people are the true starting point of the histories of the Americas, just as we did in this gathering, they've already survived the apocalypse, right? They have something to teach us about how we can get through this. Center black lives, start with indigenous peoples and follow the lead of women of color who know more often than not how to leave no one behind. And it's a space where white folks, people of privilege, know how to be not just allies, but accomplices. Anytime I'm in a movement space, an organizing space, a gathering space, if I can try to achieve those things, centering black lives, starting with indigenous, following the lead of women of color, making sure everybody has a role <laughs> to be accomplices in that picture, then I know that it's a place of power and possibility. Yeah, but I must tell you, when this person said this to me, I called her out on it. I just said, wait a minute, you know, yeah. just, just stop a minute here and think about what you're saying about how, and it didn't go well. I mean, she, you know, she was offended and why aren't you standing up for your, I mean, so it, I guess what I'm saying is that, I mean, this is not all of the stuff you lay out. These are not easy roads to travel. Um, if it were, I guess we'd all jump on them and everything would be fine. It's just a part of um, the struggle we all have to engage in. But I think it's important that especially people of color recognize that there is this sense of some sort of a, even a hierarchy in oppression, yeah. which saddens me so much. I mean, it's just boggles the mind, but you're right. It is absolutely, absolutely a response to a consequence of white supremacy. So yeah. all of this is so entwined and there's so many things that have to be teased out and lessons learned. Um, we're, we're, gonna, we're getting kind of close to the end of this and I'm gonna ask you something else now. Um, I come from a long line of warriors who overcame slavery. My maternal great-great-grandmother and my great-grandmother, whom I never knew, were slaves. Um, I come from a line of people who overcame Jim Crow. My maternal and paternal grandparents did. And my parents overcame Jim Crow, who were on the front lines of the civil rights movement in the black community in which my sisters, my two sisters and I were raised. Um, all of these folks uh, suffered humiliating and hurtful racist based experiences. And all of these folks were able to pave the way for a better life for the generations that followed them. None of them were haters, even though they had every reason to be. So I then stand on their shoulders. Given how short our time is on this earth, I think we have to decide the most efficient way to use our time. So what do you say to people, and I, I'm probably, I think I am one of those, who does not have the time, want to take the time to listen to our opponents, to, in your words, hear their pain and understand the wounds behind their words. And I think I'm one of those because, and I'm a lot older than you, so I've, you know, I've, there, I have more time behind me than I have ahead. So what do you say to folks who are like, you know, I don't have time for this, uh, to be worried about those folks who are making life difficult for so many people? Yeah. Yeah. Ladoris, we need you exactly where you are. <clears throat> we need you to build solidarity. We need you to take care of your own. We need you to continue with that labor. If you know that's the role you need to be playing, you play that role. And I guess my invitation to you is to, is to let other people who are called to tend to those opponents to go and do that labor, to do that work. Not to say, no, 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 we don't need you over there, but to say, okay, you, 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 you can do that and come back and tell me what you find. Because here's what I've discovered is that this, 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 this love ethic for our opponents, it's not just a moral act, right? It is strategic, it is strategic. We gain information about our opponents to figure out who's putting the guns in their hands, what radio stations are they listening to, what grievances do they carry, who's authorizing them to hurt us. It makes me a smarter advocate. I, um, 15 years after the murder of Babir Uncle, I reached out to his murderer, Frank Roque, and I'm now in conversation with him. I never thought that I would do so. Every few weeks I'm, I'm meeting with him and I am reading him this book. <laughs> Some people might say, we don't need your energy there. And I get it. I get it. Our people are hurting. Why are you even giving him the time of day? And I have to say, well, I don't want you to do this work. You don't have to do it. There's something in me that feels like I, I, need, I need to find out something. I have some wonder in me. I got to sit with him. And I, 
it was so hard, but I have an when I hear him, I, he was a monster to me. He had power over me for 15 years until I saw him for what he was, a frail and broken man. And when I heard his story, I began to understand, oh, okay, all of this white nationalist rage, so much of it is a symptom of unresolved grief. They are grieving the notion that this country ever belonged just to them in the first place. <laughs> Somebody's got to help them with that grief. Let me ask you this. It's probably not be, but I can give enough people permission to do that work because. But, I, but Valerie, shouldn't the burden to deal with these folks who are, you know, spouting this racist, hateful stuff, shouldn't the burden fall on white folks yeah. to be the ones to take that on so that, you know, yeah. I mean, we know what it's like just to, you know, out be in this world, to be of color, to be female and you know, to be, for example, in professions where there aren't very many of us. We don't have, you know, I know I don't have time for that. So, but shouldn't, I'm just asking, and I'm not saying it should be the case. I'm asking, shouldn't, you know, white folks be the ones to be out there leading the charge on that? Yes. <laughs> Which is why I built this framework <laughs> so that all of us can see our, what is our role in it. What is our role? And this is what I say all the time to white folks. We need you to be accomplices. We need you to do the work that I can't do and I probably shouldn't do. I speak to Frank Roque so I can build a framework that's robust enough to be able to tend to him. But I don't expect anyone else to. I needed it to do it for, for, for myself. But this idea that all of us have a different role in the labor is key. That's the thing. And I'll say one more thing about the framework. Because you, you talked about what about Latin, Latinx, you know, I deliberately do not use the word enemy because enemy is a fixed and a fixed identity. I use the word opponent because at any given time, you have someone in front of you whose ideas oppose your own. So this framework, this compass for revolutionary love, you may say, well, I'll never use that opponent part because I'm just gonna focus on myself. But sometimes, you know, your colleague becomes your opponent. <laughs> sometimes your friend, sometimes your child. <laughs> and what are the tools for you to be able to approach that in a healthy way? So this work around rage, tending to your own rage, only when it is safe enough to listen and then to reimagine solutions for all of us, that, that tends to be a flexible and useful tool for, for any of us where we are. Right. So I, I just have one final question. We have some questions coming in the chat room. And um, you know, I want to ask this last one. If we have time, I'll grab one. So in your book, you write this, and I quote, every social justice movement in the United States has been infused with the energy of faith leaders who ignite our moral imagination and connect us with our ability to recreate the world around us. We do not need religion to imagine the world we want. Okay. So in what ways can ALFers, the people who are listening in today, go about reimagining and then creating, recreating a more just world? Oh, if you could just give one example, just give one example. Yeah, like protect space to do it, protect space to do it. Um, you know, four years ago, remember we were all about resistance, resist the state violence, resist the power, resist. I even like, I had t-shirts, like the resistance, we called ourselves the resistance. And I was so proud of our act of survival. And I, at the same time, I was deeply worried because if we're only resisting, we're not reimagining anything, we're not changing anything, we're not birthing anything new. And so I feel like we're now in a moment where there's more space now to reimagine. And we are seeing people come together to reimagine the criminal justice system as we know it, policing as we know it, voting as we know it, right? But not just those big, I feel like I know that every institution on the soil needs us right now to transition it to a place that is truly anti-racist, equitable, and sustainable. Every institution, whether it's a school, your, your kid's elementary school, your house of worship, your workplace, your industry, your own home, to show up to the labor means to look where you are and think about how you can build beloved community where you are. And that's where the, the work of reimagining and protecting space for you to reimagine with others, not just the world as it is, but what it ought to be, that's frontline social justice work. Valerie Kaur, thank you so much for this conversation and spending some time with us. Um, I appreciate that you are so candid, that you are forthright and you have, um, you know, I always think when you write a memoir, it's not worth writing a memoir unless you're going to be totally, completely honest. And this is one hell of an honest memoir and manifesto. So thank you so much. So 
Um, I'm now going to turn these over to Akemi and where I guess we're gonna head next into the, the breakout sessions. Thank you, Thank you Valerie. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you, LaDoris. What an incredible conversation that sets us up for some deep, deep dialogue now. So I'm just so moved by hearing you all speak. Thank you for that opportunity. I have really missed people this year. I've missed being in community. I've missed talking about this stuff. My book came out at the onset of the pandemic. And so I've been in 200 live events, but that without able to hear people, see people. And when I talk about love, you know, I'm introducing this new framework, but truly love, love is our birthright. <laughs> it's in our, it's in our wisdom traditions, in our social movements, in our communities, in our ancestry, it's in our being, it's in our blood. We all have the ability to tap into what love means to us. And so to be able to hear where you're struggling with it and where it's speaking to you and, you know, I'm offering a new tool for something that helps that that I want to put in your hands if it's if it's, if it is helpful to us. <laughs> so I there's nothing more um it uh, uh amazing for me to hear you all engage with it. So I I thought I would close with a story about, you know, this question about what do we do? How do, what does it look like on the ground? How is it not abstract? What is it I I I wanted to show you tell you a story about how I have seen revolutionary love and work at work. Um especially because this framework, when people hear love, when they hear even about the framework, they think it's about individual or interpersonal interaction only and not about institutional change or systemic change. So, but I designed it to keep us in the labor for justice. So here's the story. Um, a few years ago, um, when I was still a fellow at Yale Law School, I had just returned from Guantanamo Bay, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where I was there as a legal observer and was so distraught by the conditions of solitary confinement on that base. I returned to my law school and realized that there was a prison just a few miles away from my law school that held people in conditions of solitary confinement that rivaled what I had seen at Guantanamo. <laughs> that Guantanamo was possible because of our culture of mass incarceration here in the US. And so I gathered a group of students together and I said, well, what if, what if we investigated this prison? What if we tried to tell a story about this prison? What if we made a film? And we spent a year sitting with former prisoners, their families, hearing story after story, 23 hours a day in lockdown, one hour in a larger cage, how people began to hallucinate, how it was a form of torture, how the years would turn into decades for some people. There were almost all brown and black men. And at somewhere along the line, as we were wondering about others, grieving with them, imagining how to fight for them and with them, I began to think about our opponents. In this case, the correctional officers. I began to wonder about them and I wanted to listen to them. Now this was controversial. The other students at the law school was like, what, you, how dare you give them even the light of day, give them any kind of attention. And there was something in me that wanted to put what was forming as the revolutionary love framework at, at work. And so when we decided that, yes, we were safe enough to do this, we sat with former correctional officers and we listened to their stories. And at first, as much as I wanted to hate them, calling themselves captives, talking about their own suffering, Finally, I began to listen and hear them on their own terms, and they were describing high suicide rates, high depression rates, high alcoholism rates, that they had to go in to a system every day that required them to dehumanize others, and that was taking a cost on them. It was not equivalent to the suffering of those behind bars, but still it was a woundedness caused by the institution. So over the course of the year, we told a story, we made a film that included the stories of the prisoners, and the stories of the correctional officers. This was new. When our film was released, the worst of the worst, we called it, the Department of Corrections saw the film and saw that we were naming the bad guy, the real enemy, <laughs> the institution itself, that it was harming everyone who walked through its doors. As a result of our film, together with a policy report that Yale Law School put out, the prison slowly, quietly began to empty its cells. It went from 400 to 40. And I thought, this is progress. This, this is amazing. And I began to you know, tell it as a story of success, but over the course of a few years, and I write about this in chapter six of See No Stranger, 
the prison began to fill up again. And this is where I thought, okay, the labor for justice lasts a lifetime. I may not live to see the fruits of my labor. But what I didn't know, what I couldn't know, was how the film sparked people on the ground there in Connecticut to stay in the labor. That formerly incarcerated young people with their parents, with community advocates, and now with former correctional officers maintained the movement. And I am astonished to announce, I haven't even announced this publicly, I just got a note from my, my a law professor at Yale Law School saying, look, look at what you did, look what happened. Nine years later, nine years later, the Department of Corrections has announced that it will dismantle Northern Correctional Facility. Dismantle the Supermax prison. <laughs> if we can do it in Connecticut, we can do it in states all across the country and solitary confinement as we know it. And I've been reflecting on how we did it, how, right? And there's that compass, right? It was the compass at work, love for others. They were wondering about each other, grieving with each other, fighting for each other, building coalitions of solidarity, right? Then they were loving on themselves. <laughs> how do you last in the labor that goes for a decade when you're dealing with your own trauma? You take turns, you breathe, you, you count on each other, you hold each other, you breathe before you push, right? They had to find longevity in the labor. And some of them, and we just happened to be among them, did the work of wondering about our opponents, seeing them as not, not as evil, but as frail and wounded human beings, gathering information about them, and then reimagining a solution that would free even them from a system such as this. Revolutionary love. <laughs> this is why I believe it's the call of our times. All of us are part of institutions that either need to be dismantled and replaced, reformed, or reimagined. And staying in the labor with the ethic of love, I believe, is how we last. So this goes to your question, like, what do we do? What do we do? How do we practice it? <laughs> I'm really excited. I will sh I'll ask the, our tech person to show that compass once more. We have created a learning hub, a revolutionary love learning hub. You could read the book and go to it. You don't even need the book to go to it. Um, we have created a learning hub with a team of research scholars that, yeah, here it is. You go to ValerieCore.com. We haven't announced it yet. So this is sort of the soft launch of it. I'd love to hear what you all think. When you go there, you'll see the compass come to life. And there are practices and guiding questions, videos, tools, tutorials. And there's also an educational guide, a complete 100-page curriculum with case studies and everything about the 10 core practices and how we might be able to equip our young people in particular to be able to practice this together. What's been so exciting is that uh, in the last months, we have seen people approach us from all sectors of public life. Educators are coming to us saying, we want to make revolutionary love the ethic of our school culture. We're talking about love and respect, but how? How We need a shared vocabulary. So elementary schools, pre-K, <laughs> all the way up to high school, we're working a lot with independent schools, especially here on the west side of Los Angeles, to start to pilot these programs. At the same time, we see faith leaders approaching us saying we want to make this compass how we do love and service in our houses of worship. And just now, I'm seeing organizations, including advocacy organizations and companies, corporations, saying how do we think about building beloved community where we are? The good news, it's a little overwhelming, to be honest, <laughs> but the good news is that I am in this work for a lifetime. I'm not going anywhere, everyone. So my promise to you is to move not slowly, but deliberately. I want to continue to build our learning hub, to continue to build these tools. And I've been really emboldened by some research that's come out of Harvard around social change. They say that when 3.5% of a population engages in a nonviolent action, it creates change throughout an entire society. So that's about 11 million people here in the United States. My vision, what if we could equip, meaningfully equip, 11 million people in this country to make love a conscious practice where they are, to build beloved community where we are. Might that be the critical mass that we need to shift culture and consciousness over the course of the next few decades? I invite you 
to join the movement. You know, I never intended to start a separate movement. I wanted revolutionary love to see the existing movements and campaigns and collectives out there, but it's sort of becoming its own force too. People are developing artwork and songs. The song that you're going to, you heard at the beginning that you're going to go out on is a song written for the movement by Ani DeFranco and Justin Tranter called See No Stranger. Her new album is called Revolutionary Love. So we're seeing um, cultural artifacts being produced in different sectors, surprising places. Haley Bieber, I just took over her Instagram account, wanting to hear about love as an ethic. So I think, okay, all right. <laughs> if we can do this together, then then perhaps it's the, the song that we might sing all together. Now that I've found revolutionary love, it is the song I'll be singing for all my days. And I just invite you to sing it with me. So I'm gonna put my email address in the chat. If you feel like this is something you wanna take into your life, your community, you wanna see, help build in any kind of way engage with the learning hub it's all free by the way all free and available to anyone most of the sources are open source so that no matter who we are where we are we can take these tools but if you want to dig into it even more meaningfully with me please let me know reach out the last thing i will leave you with in my last 60 seconds is this ladora's talked about her ancestors and oh how gorgeous the way that she talked about how her ancestors gave her not their trauma but their resilience right you heard her talk about how you know they they weren't haters they they did something with their time on earth I, that's what i want to do and i i've been thinking a lot about this notion of ancestors and i've been thinking about us that we will be someone's ancestors one day they will summon us and if we show up with with love with bravery when they summon us, they will not inherit our trauma or our grief from this time in history. Perhaps they will inherit our courage, even our joy, and our love. So let us be good ancestors together. Thank you so much for this time together. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.